Race matters. 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 To acknowledge that we are broadcasting on unceded Gadigal land. This land has been in the hands of generations of Gadigal custodians for thousands of years before us, and it will continue to be in their hands long after us. It's a meeting place for sharing knowledge, stories, and song, and we are privileged to be a part of that storytelling today and every day at FBI Radio. I pay my respects to Gadigal elders, past and present. We're broadcasting from Redfern right now, the birthplace of black theatre in this country and a site for resistance and resilience for First Nations people. Welcome to Race Matters. This is a show hosted by people of colour, speaking with people of colour about the ways we understand and value our racial identities. I'm Sada Khan. I'm Daryl Sargas, and on today's show, uh, we're talking to two Sydney-based creatives who uh, who found themselves on a new place showing at uh, Riverside Theatre in Parramatta. Let me know when you get home. Uh, Tanya will be chatting with playwright uh, Miranda Aguila uh, later on in the show, and sooner than that, we'll be joined by one of the cast members, Tommy Misa, who, as well as being a part of this production, is also a, a multidisciplinary artist who works across film, theatre, and uh, queer club and performance scenes. We're going to be talking chosen families, uh, intergenerational queerness, and uh, what that means in Sydney and uh, West Sydney. It's going to be great. This is Race Matters. Uh, you are with Daryl Sargas and Sada Khan. And we're joined in the studio by Tommy Misa. They're an interdisciplinary artist who works in film, theatre and uh, club performance. They're in a show called Let Me Know When You Get Home, showing at Riverside Theatre this week. We'll hear some more about that uh, later. But for now, Tommy, thank you so much for joining us. Hi. Thank you for having me. Of course. Hey, I'm the- Sydney. Hey. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, before we get into the stuff you've been working on lately, I want to take it um, back to the start. Um, mm. What was your first introduction to the world of performance, Tommy? Um, as a kid, actually, I, I used to perform. Um, I grew up in Canberra and in Samoa, and when we first moved back to Australia, we my parents really wanted me to perform in a Samoan in a Samoan cultural dance troupe. So that was my first introduction. And then it just kind of continued, and and then um, I was a complete dropkick in high school, so I stopped. I stopped performing, and then kind of moved to Sydney and like did the big city gal thing, and then returned to it when I was like in my mid twenties. Um, I had like a bit of a light bulb moment where I was studying nutritional medicine, which I really enjoyed, but it just wasn't for me. And I knew there was something like I needed to do. Mm-hmm. And and so I, I I returned to performing with with acting. Yeah, so I started acting first, and then I just kind of I guess in queer a lot like often with queer artists, you kind of do everything out of for different reasons, like out of necessity, um, out of experience. Um, yeah, so now I just do everything. Yeah, yeah, and I love it. Like yeah. it's it's become my currency. 
I used to be like, I want to be an actor and I want to go to Hollywood. And now I'm like, no, I don't. I, <laughs> I really want to do everything. Yeah. And, um, and I also write. Um, and that was also started out of necessity. Uh, just wanting to work. I was sick of not working and having the drive and the hunger to work as an actor. So I started writing and then people, can I use the F word? Uh, we can people let's set a language warning people people fudged with my yeah writing and then it just kind of went from there Mm. nice yeah Yeah. i mean like that's kind of the story of most artists of color as Mm. well is like you kind of have to be everything yeah well we don't have the luxury of mediocrity that's Mm. right that's right (laughs) oh my god of like yeah of you know certain people that can just show up and deliver mediocre performances, mediocre art, Hmm. and get by on that. We don't have that luxury. So we really do have to be across it all and be our own boss, be our own business person. Like, that's what it is. Yeah, absolutely. Mm. It's also a way that we have to kind of write our way into the space as well because it's so gatekeeped. Of course. And often we're the first in, uh, you know, and we're representing XYZ amount of, um, you know, communities and cultures etc etc and so yeah often being the first one in comes with huge responsibility and when I say the first one in I say that in that like it's not that there were people before us that it was just like they literally couldn't even get in through the door you know Mm. so I think it comes with huge privilege in itself to actually be in spaces yeah and so with that comes like you got to disrupt and you got to shake things up and yeah and so who were the figures that you looked to for examples then on how to model your, yourself in performance? Oh, that's a good question. Um, I think probably a lot of it was from queer queer worlds. So it wasn't necessarily in the acting world because that it was just kind of non-existent and still is quite non-existent in Australia. There's a lot of us out there, but... Um, yeah, I don't know. I guess like in the club, like um, seeing people in the club, seeing seeing the girls, you know, seeing all the sleigh girls, seeing like Betty Grumble, mm. people like Aaron Manhattan and um, yeah, lots of club performers, I think. Disruptors. Disruptors, mm. cultural disruptors. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. And, oh, and oh, wow. And also like people who, who have also just like really held me in in my career, uh, like a, a huge one is um, Emma Ungavule, and sh- she really has been like my stage mom and has, I've worked with her in different projects and um, yeah, she's probably, actually she's probably the biggest one for me. She's like stage mom, stage auntie, stage yep. sissy. <laughs> yeah. In yeah. a nice way. In an amazing way. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Because it's scary. It's really mm. scary, I think. Um, and I didn't, I tried to go to drama school. I went and did acting classes and did, you know, my own made my made my own sort of like education through going through different studios and theater companies and learning that way, but drama schools didn't want me. I just don't think they knew what to do with me. Also like going into auditions for drama schools, I was like those words from Shakespeare like they don't roll off my tongue. Mm-hmm. It doesn't feel good. Mm-hmm. And I didn't even know how to like I I never knew how to and I still don't I, and I know it's a thing for some people, but that kind of classical text is just yeah. it's not cute for me. No, yeah. 
But like, big love to all the people that learn how to, yeah. you know. Oh, yeah. I so resonate with everything you just said. <laughs> yeah. Um, Tommy, a lot of your work is informed by, you know, cultural tradition, your heritage, mm. your Samoan heritage. How do you uh, reconcile that with contemporary performance? Um, I think a lot of it is around the diasporic experience for me and how I can find that translation from from the motherland. And, and I think it, for me, sort of comes down to, like, connecting with, like, cultural core, core values of of Samoan and Pacifica and Indigenous culture and, and how we hold space for each other, how we respect each other. And that, I think, is probably one of the biggest things um, in the transfer over from, like, cultural practice to contemporary practice is, like, the groundwork mm. of thousands of years of storytelling and bringing that into these really bizarre institutionalized spaces where like often you know you're performing in a space where like in the next gallery over there's like stolen artwork from you know from your culture so it's really this really bizarre thing um where i think yeah sort of holding those yeah like the core values i guess of of someone culture mm. Well, that kind of just speaks to what we were just um, going to ask you as well, which is like how important it is that the spaces you do agree to participate in, whether that be programs, venues or productions, how um, important it is for you that they are aligned with your own ideas of performance? I think that's a really tricky one because every institute has people up in the, you know, the upper levels that, and people and and companies that um, perhaps you don't agree with, and I don't I don't, I don't know if I have an answer of how I like reconcile that, because um, I think I think it's sometimes it's like it's about securing the bag. Yeah, <laughs> and absolutely. being like, yeah. okay, well, if I'm gonna <laughs> if I'm gonna come into your space and I know that I'm a box ticker, then it's gonna be on my terms, mm-hmm. uh-huh. and like I, maybe I won't. Maybe I'll, you know, maybe it will be, I'll seem like a difficult person to work with, but that's my way of like disrupting it, you know, and making it okay is being like, I'll do it in my, on my terms because I don't want to make it easy for you to make money off me. Yeah. Um, and also speaking to people, I think I speak to people, uh, that I really respect who may have worked with certain companies or people and, and, and just ask them how to navigate it. Cause I think it's. I don't think I, I don't have the answer of how to navigate it. I think it's a difficult thing to do. And ever I'm always talking to people and, you know, we're always constantly being like, I want to get the money, but also like, that's not my people. And that's, yeah. that's not an institute that yeah. I want to. I mean, with. like we've had conversations about this as well, where how do you kind of gauge that space before mm. you get into it as well to make yeah. sure that it's like, okay, like how much of my well being is gonna be compromised for this project and is it worth it enough? Because That's at the true. end of the day, like we do need to get paid. Like yeah. it's a fact of the system that we live in. That's yeah. not something that we should ever feel ashamed of like discussing because it's like I have bills to pay just like the next person. Mm-hmm. Mm. Um but it's also like, okay, so then how do I kind of analyze this space to make sure that like, you know, I can kind of disrupt and hold enough but not so much to the point where um, it's going to be detrimental to to my own mental health and deciding what it is that you want to give yeah and and some stuff 
Uh, I remember early on when I first started creating work, I was new to creating work for white spaces um, and contemporary spaces, and I think I was just giving it all. And then, and then someone actually it was Emile Ongavule who was like, "You need to, you need to like decide what is actually for you and for your culture and only for your people, and for the eyes of a safe audience, and what's." for the eyes and experiences of that audience and what do you want to say to that audience because yeah it's it that is that thing of like protecting yourself and guarding yourself and putting your well-being first and that comes back to the importance and the safety and the well-being of cultural practice where yeah. that is at the forefront forefront of how we make work is about like being safe in that work mm. Yeah. Um, I saw online that you were work working on something that explores the the intergenerational gaps between queers in mm. um, in Sydney. Can you tell us about that? Yeah, I think that that probably was. I feel like I do a lot of stuff around that, but mm. maybe what you saw online was a play that I wrote yeah. and performed last year mm -hmm. called "They Took Me to a Queer Bar." That was a play that was set in a fictional queer venue and looked at the the gentrification of like inner Sydney, but and like the way that we moved out queer communities from inner city moving us further out. But then before that, like migrant communities living in, say, like Surrey Hills. And, mm -hmm. um, and what I was really interested in was the gap from, um, I guess, older queer folks that lived through the AIDS era. Um, and and then, and then, like the the younger generation who have like digital queer communities, and how there is, I think sometimes uh, a lack of acknowledgement of like who has come before us, and in particular, I think it's difficult in BIPOC uh, queer folks because the way like we only in Australian history we only talk about queer white people in terms of our history and, like, who, who came before. So for me it was, like, about looking at who who were the people of colour that were in Australia, like, back in the day doing the work. And, like, I get, like someone in particular was um, Carmen Rupe, who was a Māori trans woman who moved to Australia in the 50s um, and did a lot of work here for sex workers um, and, and then moved back to Aotearoa and... Um, did a lot of work there and was going to become a politician, but we don't hear about her in mm. our stories. Yeah. People like her, and um, there was a woman in like girls called Asia, an Asian woman who was a, an Asian trans woman who, um, yeah, was around performing for years. Like we don't hear of those stories, and we, and 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 also like some, and also like there are some white folks, some white women in particular, like Dawn O'Donnell, who. Um, started and sort of ran a lot of these venues on Oxford Street and queer venues and opened a bunch of places, kind of brought, like, the queer bar culture to Newtown. So, like, these people that we don't hear about in our, in our history, um, it was kind of making that those connections because, because we don't hear about them. And I think that's why a lot of the time, like, young Q-pop folk are like, well, why should we talk about that history when we don't belong in it? But it's like we did. We just need mm. we just need to like speak voice and um and bring these people back into the history books. Yeah. yeah. Revitalize their stories. Mm. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's something that I reckon has 
culminated a lot, especially out of 2020, mm. um, there's been a very strong reclamation of mm. stories and space and, you know, making sure that history is um, told honestly, truthfully. Yeah. You know, but it's also been really hard as well because 2020, we all got kind of like separated mm. from those stories, from from like our own kind of roots, I guess. So like, how did you kind of stay connected with Samoa over the past year? Um, it was really difficult because I, bef- before COVID kicked in, had really wanted to go back there and stay there for, for a while. And then that all went down the drain. Um, and now we can't go. And just before COVID as well, Samoa went through a really big um, measles outbreak and yeah. it was really tragic. Um, so it had been a really rough patch even before that, even before COVID. Um, talking to family was a big thing for me and also talking to and hanging out with, like, queer and Pacifica folks here in in Sydney um, that was a way and always has been a way for me to connect to, uh, yeah, back to the motherland, back to the ocean mm. and being in the ocean too. That's always, she's mother, she's healing, you know, she's, she really gives a lot and knowing that it's the same ocean that, that we share the same ocean was, was quite a reconnecting thing for me during COVID and always. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. We are joined by Tommy Misa, um, artist based uh, here in Sydney. We're going to chat about a show they're performing in next week called Let Me Know When You Get Home. Can you share with us about your role in the play and how you connected with the piece? Yeah. Um, so I play a character called Prince uh, and they're a, um, a queer maker artist um, who runs a like a... Oh, I'm just trying to think what like to not give away things. Oh yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, they play like a guiding mentoring role to the lead character um who's come, who's kind of coming into the city from the west to mm-hmm. find themselves in the queer community. Um and yeah, it's a re- it's a really beautiful, it's a really special role. They're very they're very funny. I'm very funny. You're very funny. <laughs> I was like, okay. Wait, that's me. That's me. <laughs> I'm <get> very funny. <laughs> um, yeah, no, but it, it is a really funny, funny play, and it's a really beautiful coming of age play, and it's really nice to see um, queer queer work, coming of age work that's people of color, um, and that's not. I mean, it's it's moves in and out of being in the city and in Western Sydney, so. Um, it's and and it's not a and it's not like a traumatic queer mm. work, which is really nice to see. And it's not it's yeah it's rare to see queer work that doesn't sort of really look into grief and and heavy trauma. Yeah, yeah. So it's been it's been just such a nice experience and a loving experience, and everyone's been wonderful. Yeah, I love the um contrast of space style as well between Western Sydney and the city because it is such a different lived experience like it's not that far away because we always hear stories about like you know 
going from like a rural area into the city and it's like from the country mm. to the city, big changes. Mm. Like, but that change can happen even just like 40 minutes away. Oh, down it's, the train line. Change, yeah. Just down the train line, it's already so, it can already be such a, um, you know, not as much of a welcoming um, space for your mm. identity if you're um, queer and of colour yeah. compared to like coming into the city. Like the closer you get to the city, the more... Um, the, the safer it is yeah. as well. And I just find it real. I just love that that's um, what has been contrasted in the narrative as well is that it's not like, because we know the story of like country to city, but mm. like Western Sydney to the city, I think that's an important thing to kind of um, show Absolutely. the dichotomy between the two as well. Yeah. And, and I think that it's, and the play does look at this, um, what you give up when you leave Western Sydney and what you gain when you move into the city, particularly for, queer people mm. and queer people of colour um, is looking at that of the things that you lose and the things that you gain and fi- like finding how you accept that. Yeah. Mm. Um, yeah, and that idea of home being like where and for a lot of people of colour, queer people of colour, you know, it's th- like that diasporic experience it can exist in your own city, you know. It's oh, like, yeah. This is where you're this is where you grew up and then and then this is where you're like now meant to be where when we, because of safety or whatever it may be um yeah yeah that's something i fully resonate with yeah. as you know a, a young you know kid filipino huge family and this idea of even coming out is being is a foreign concept mm. to like you know most um young people of color because it's just not something that's regularly done or done in a way that or presented in like you know the media or any other kind of stories that you're told from elders or anything where it is something that you can safely do or that even exists yeah. so yeah i love the the notion of like a second diaspora of like moving from or like being diasporic from like the motherland but then being diasporic from your literal home mm. be it you know out like in the suburbs or like in western sydney and then finding a chosen family elsewhere and then you know trying to um, make sense of where you fit in between the two mm. yeah and i think as well like i really resonated with the play I grew up in Canberra and it and the area I grew up in Canberra has I guess to me feels like uh, that's sort of like my connection to the western Sydney is through the similarities between the area I grew up in in Canberra and I remember I in I wanted to get out of Canberra as soon as I could I was like I'm done I dropped out of school and I moved to Sydney and thought that and this you know was like 11 years ago 12 years ago and so i thought that like oxford street because that's mm. what i see on the tv was like meant to be my people and then you and then arriving to that and and you know doing oxford street and realizing oh i, I feel even more i don't think i've actually think i've no i know i've definitely faced the most racism in gay bars on oxford street yeah. from gay cisgender white men me yeah. too and that's such an like a horrible feeling and realization to have when you're like this is meant to be my place and then it it was like a a good few years before i found queer community and then beyond that queer poc community so it was kind of like all these these steps to be like okay now i've found like my people yeah Mm. yeah i mean the story as well 
begins from what we what we know so far mm. of the protagonist struggling with that transition between high school and university. And you were just mm. kind of touching on that a bit. Like, you know, how was that adjustment period with, you know, with yourself as a teen between high school and university? Because you do, like, when you exit high school, you're like, now I can be myself. Yeah. And it's just such a, like, you don't even know how much, like, your journey is, like, so how long it is ahead of you. Yeah, absolutely. I think, um, I mean, I dropped out of school. I was a bad kid. Um, <laughs> and I was like, I'm off to work at JJ's. And I was yes! working in this club underage, like, making drinks at night. And I was, like, saving my coin to move to Sydney. Amazing. And and I came out quite young in high school and... um. And that was part like a reason why I, I just didn't like high school. Um, so I think a, the big sort of transitionary period for me was making the move to Sydney, and was sort of that move from Canberra to Sydney, and 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 realizing like, yeah, like finding my place here. It wasn't so much like in in home in Canberra. It was more when I moved moved to Sydney, being like, okay, cool, trying to figure it all out. And it's so, such a hard thing to do as well. Yeah. I remember I like got re- I remember like hadn't lived out of home and I was just like such a mess. And I moved to Sydney. And I was like, this is wild. I can go out until like RIP when you could go out to the club oh, till yeah. like two <laughs> o'clock sunrise. in the afternoon yeah. Yeah. on a Sunday yeah. and yeah. just go back to back to back. Mm-hmm. And I remember my hair started falling out. I started getting really sick because I was just like. <laughs> I was just on one. Yeah, yeah. And that was like, you know, just like all that kind of stuff, like figuring out li- like how to adult, mm-hmm. just being like this little twink from Canberra that was just like, <laughs> I'm in the big city. And then like trying to figure out life and a- to adult, how to adult here, but also trying to figure out like my identity and who I was. And um, yeah. I mean, like I, <laughs> I read something recently that was saying that, Everyone says that, like, the 20s are the best year of your life. But when you think about it, you don't really know what you're, like... I, you're not yeah. going to feel like you're That's not it. even aware no. about what's... Like, you know, you're fully developed. <laughs> I, so, I'm, I'm 28, 28 and three quarters. Um, so, I've started, like, you know, I'm, like, this is... I, I'm, like, now saying, like, me and my friends, uh, some of my friends are just turning 30 this year or next year. We're, like, this is 30. Like, yeah. and, and my friends said the other day, they said this great saying, they said... Um, 20s are for learning, 30s are for earning. Yeah. And I was like, that's it. That's, that's it. it. Yes. 20s were totally for learning. Yeah. Because yeah. when I think about my early 20s, I'm like, I don't want to be her ever again. No. Right? Like, I, like, I did not. I was not. I put myself in so many unself, unsafe circumstances exactly. on Oxford Street. Yes. Oh, my God. Yeah. And, like, I just think back to it and I'm like, I was not. Like, my brain was not fully developed. I, my critical skills were not 100% there. Like, I feel like I can do all of this now with the skills and the awareness and, like, the confidence, mm. like, the unapologetic self that I've got now. Yes. Like, do you feel like that as well? Like, you're just like, yeah, I'm going to do all of that still in my 30s, but, like, as, like, my most unapologetic self, like, with the most critical lens that I've ever had. Yeah, I think in now in... I'm saying, like, I'm 30 in my 30s already. <laughs> well, I'm like, now 30s. in my We're 30s. We're not there. We're not there. But, but now, now in my, um, yeah, the you know, the uphill thing to 30s. I think now it's, yeah, still all of that, but slowing down and actually thinking and feeling and and figuring things out properly. Like, yeah. I think I'm so glad 
that my Bebo doesn't still exist. Oh, oh my like, god! Bebo's making a comeback though. No, is it? I Mine's know. gone. It? I definitely deleted mine. I deleted mine too. I definitely deleted mine. But I think, and that's that's one thing that really scares me as well. Um, for younger younger people, is that they don't like they don't get to make mistakes as much as we used to. That's true. Because like. People out here on the streets ready to cancel. That's like their full time job. Mm. And I think I'm so glad I grew up when I did and I learnt the things that I did when I did. Also, because like when you're in a left leaning and progressive worlds, and, and if you didn't grow up and you don't have that same access to education and to language around what, not to say what, like, what am I trying to say? What I'm trying to say is that, like, I didn't grow up with a great education and I think that has a lot to do with, like, the things and the way that I experienced the world and the access that I had to, you know, what is right and what is wrong and what is, like, progressive thinking. Yeah. And I think a lot of the time, like, people don't have that same access and people are so quick to jump onto, like, you know, be like, you should know better. And it's like, well, mm. we d- a lot of us didn't know better and yeah. a lot of us didn't have the, pri- the privilege of knowing better because we were just trying to get by. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Tommy, uh, we are nearing the end of our time together, but there is one question that we ask uh, all our guests who come through on Race Matters. Uh, Tommy Misa, when did you realise there was power in your race? Oh, I think, you know what? When I was probably in, when I was like in my late teens, and that was in bed with old white men. Oh, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And that was when I, I didn't know I had the power. Yeah, then. yeah. Mm. But now when I look back at, it, back at it, I'm like, damn, I had power. That You're is the first salacious answer we've had yeah. to that. I love it. Yeah. Well, I just think, like, first time I thought of it. Yeah. yeah. And I, I was like, yeah, that was it. That was the moment. Yeah. I think I've had a similar experience as mm. well when it comes to white men of being like, oh, you, like, I I could actually get away with, like, I could do what I want with you right now. <laughs> and we talk a lot about, you know, you talk a lot about, like, like younger people of colour getting taken advantage by, like, older white men, but I'm like, but what about the power that we have? Oh, Let's talk yeah. about that. Yeah. yeah. Let's talk about that. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> oh, my God. Well, let me know when you get home. Premieres this week at Riverside Theatre Company in Parramatta on the 18th, 19th, and 20th of March. The link to get tickets is on our website, fbrradio.com forward slash programs, and click through to the Race Matters page. Tommy, thank you so much for joining us for this chat. It's Thanks been so wholesome having, having you on. It's been really nice to be here. I'm Darren Lasagas. And I'm Sada Khan. We just heard from interdisciplinary artist Tommy Mesa, as well as the play that they're in, Let Me Know When You Get Home. Tanya Ali caught up with the play right behind it earlier this week. There are a million different plays about dysfunctional white families. And I also like those plays. But if there can be a million of those, you can have a million First Nation plays and Philippinex plays and Latinx plays and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Hi, my name's Miranda Aguilar. I'm a queer Filipinx writer. Miranda Aguilar is the brain behind a theatre production about to kick off a season at Riverside Parramatta. 
Its deeply evocative title is a phrase that is so commonly said or texted by me, and probably you, especially if you're not a straight cis white dude. Let me know when you get home. First off, I want to just shout out uh, Brian Fuwada, who I said, I'm thinking of this name, but I think it's too long. And he went, no, this is great. I love long titles. And I went, great. And then every time someone's like, wow, that's a mouthful. I'm like, yes, but it's good. (laughs) (laughs) So just that's all I have to say about that. Um, But yeah, I use it all the time. I use it with all of my friends, like friends of any kind of like marginalized gender friends who like are traveling long ways. And then because I live in like the Blacktown area, so anytime I want to see any kind of theater show, especially, even if I'm seeing something that's still in Western Sydney, most likely I still have to travel to like Penrith or Parramatta or Fairfield, but more often I have to travel to the city. So it's always a huge thing of like, I have to travel all the way out. I can't stay out late for the late night drinks with people because I have to go all the way home. And I was really thinking about that commute that I make and that so many people make just to find your community. And that's why I thought, let me know when you get home really encompasses that idea. Okay, so we love the title, but what's the play actually about? Okay, so the elevator pitch is that Let Me Know When You Get Home is about growing up queer in Western Sydney. It follows Val, who's a 17-year-old Filipino lesbian living in Fairfield. She and her best friend T, they've both graduated high school, they've both finished their HSC, and they're both really anxious to be seen as adults and get out of this weird purgatory period between high school and adulthood. So... Val makes a break and decides she needs to find her community, and she goes and joins a Mardi Gras parade group out in the city. And at the same time, her best friend T joins a Bible study group. So a lot of it is about their friendship and about growing up and how do you maintain a friendship when it seems like you're growing up in different directions. And... How do you maintain a friendship when it turns out that the things you thought you knew aren't maybe what you thought you knew? That the people you know are way more complex than they actual than you actually think they are. So I started writing it in 2016. Uh, so it's been a long time, and the writing process is super messy because I don't know how to write plays, or I guess I know now. <laughs> <laughs> And I've now read more scripts and have gone, okay, everyone writes them really differently. Uh, But it was like a long process of trying to figure out like, okay, well, what makes this a play? Especially because I also write for screen. So when I was writing for screen, there's a, there's in the many million drafts I made, there's some drafts where it's like, that's a really nice scene for a movie. This does not work in theater. Uh, So I was lucky enough to get support from Playwriting Australia before it uh, merged with Australian Plays, and I got dramaturgical support, uh, first from Ian Sinclair and then Tasnim Hussain, who were really great and really helped me think about like, ooh, okay, this is how to think about it as not just conversations that are loosely linked, but as an actual 
play with an arc and with characters and that makes sense in a theater space. So when I started <laughs> writing it, my inspiration was uh, specifically I was thinking about how uh, so I'm bisexual and if you you have this stereotypical idea of like what a gay man looks like and what a lesbian looks like and then I went what does a bisexual look like <laughs> what is that kind of uniform and then I was really interested in thinking about like nuanced ideas around sexuality uh, and I was also thinking about myself when I was 17 so this is not an autobiographical story. A lot of people uh, ask and think it is. It is not. But it, what it is is a little bit of me going, what if I knew myself a little bit better when I was 17? What if I like, was a little bit braver, but I still had the imposter syndrome <laughs> that plagues so many people? Uh, and then as I continued writing, a big thing that changed the course of it is that, of course, the postal plebiscite happened. And in the area where I live and in the areas where I work, because I work around Fairfield and Liverpool a lot, uh, they all voted majority no. And I went, well, so all these people who tell you, hey, if you're a queer and you live in Western Sydney, there's no, you got no choice. If you want to feel accepted and safe and valid, you got to move out to the city. And I went, what, what are we meant to do if we're still here? <laughs> mm. And I was especially thinking about, like, I am an adult and I can, like, take a train and I can, like, I can go around places. If I'm a young person and someone tell tells me, oh, well, you just got to move out. What what do you mean I've just got to move out? What the fuck does that mean? Yeah, Miranda talking about this really took me back to 2016. I was a couple of years out of high school at the time, but I was still living at home in an electorate that also voted majority no in the plebiscite. And it felt like such a slap in the face, thinking that more than one in every two people I walked past probably didn't believe that I should have the same rights as them. But it was also so fraught. Sweeping statements from white media about the homophobia in these areas was pretty much straight up racist, especially considering so much of the Yes campaign completely excluded queer people of colour and more broadly POC communities from the conversation. Anyway, I digress. Back to Miranda when they were starting to write, let me know when you get home. I was especially thinking about how uh, so the It Gets Petter campaign came out, I think, when I was in high school. And, um, I haven't fa fact-checked this, but in my <laughs> head it feels like when I was in high school. And I remember seeing that and going, okay, but it sucks right now. <laughs> yeah. And I really wanted to sort of make something that tells like queer young people like yeah i know it does suck right now hopefully it, it will get better but that doesn't help you right now so for now i'm just gonna sit here with you and we'll both feel the suck together <laughs> so i wrote this play that's ostensibly it's for queer western sydney youth and for any queer western sydney folks but i also at least partially wrote it it uh thinking in mind about Adults and people who are in places of power, especially in organizations and community organizations. I wrote this partially as a reminder to myself and hopefully as a reminder to other people that when you're working in these organizations and you're working with people of marginalized identities, people at the margins of power, that 
you can't just assume that, oh, I have all these ethics, so this is a safe place. This is a like, I'm making people feel accepted. I'm making people feel like this is a safe place for them to be because you might not be. I really hope that uh, some folks will come away from the play and go, okay, so in these places where I have power, how am I making young people feel heard? How am I making sure queer people and people of color and people of all different identities and, and different margins are feeling safe and accepted where I work? So theater, notoriously white, often skews toward an older audience as well. Considering that, what change would Miranda like to see in local theatre in 2021? How much time do you have? <laughs> uh, what I would like to see, I would like to see more work come out where instead of people celebrating it just because the cast is culturally diverse, that the writers and directors and people behind the scenes are also culturally diverse. I find that I'm there's a lot of times where I'm really excited about a work and then I look it up and I go, hmm, it's the same director I've seen over and over again who keeps getting work. And I would also like to see more work that's being made by creatives of color not being told, okay, you have to make this work and this work and now you only have to make this work. Or no, you can't make... I don't want anyone to be like, you can't make another queer Filipino play because there's already is a queer Filipino play because there are so many of us. Yeah. And we're all so different. There's no reason for why there should only be one. I realized there was power in my race and being Asian and being being Filipinx. I think when I think the thing that comes to mind and is maybe a little bit cheesy is when I think about my mom and when I grew up and I stopped seeing her from the eyes of like a bratty teenager who had all of these assumptions about her and all of these assumptions about her being a typical Filipinx mom there are no typical Filipinx moms. Uh, There are only generalizations. And I truly saw just how powerful and strong she was and how much I had underestimated her. And I thought, if I have made all these under... Uh, have underestimated her for all these years, what else have I underestimated about just being Filipino in general? You can find every episode of our show at fbiradio.com slash race matters or wherever you get your podcasts. Thank you so much for listening and we'll catch you next week. Race matters. 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 Race matters.